I definitely knew Deloitte was not for me long term. And I knew even though I was kind of on that partner track eventually, I was like, why would I want to be a partner at the firm that doesn't see their family? And that was like really deterred me from wanting to reach those levels. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show, where today we have on Brennan Schlagbaum, aka Budget Dog, to talk about his journey from a CPA to a huge financial influencer. But before we get into that, let me check in with my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man? Hey, Cody. Um, I think I'm probably doing something I never thought I would ever do in my life, and that is travel to Saudi Arabia this weekend. And um, it's been awesome so far. I didn't really know what to expect, but I ended up having two friends that are out here. And I've only been here for less than 48 hours and I've already done a ton. I went and saw like where my buddy grew up. He's like their desert house. I've been, you know, to a lot of local restaurants, a lot of the sooks, which are little shops. He got me a thobe, which is kind of the the white full length outfit that you maybe a lot of people traditionally see with like kind of the red headdress thing with a black band at the top. If you're not familiar with that, and so we're actually throwing those on tonight and going over to one of his brother's places. Like a big group's getting together and they're bringing in camel. It's the end of Ramadan. It's a holiday called Eid, and so that's today is Eid. It's kind of celebrating the end of Ramadan. Yeah, so it's just it's been crazy. We're going to. Bahrain tomorrow. We're going there for like three days. Um, and then we're going to do some other activities here in Saudi till I leave on the 10th. I'm just curious because I have not ventured over to that part of the world. What has been the biggest culture shock so far? It's weird, but it's almost, I'd say the two things or maybe three. <laughs> One is like the lack of a culture shock. Like it's, I thought it was going to be like so different. And I mean, it's different but it is very obvious that there's like a, a large like Western adaptation going on. And there's been large changes since 2018. So if you have been over here in the past and you haven't been since 2018, I'd really recommend coming back. A lot of, you know, like chain restaurants from America. I mean, you'll go to a strip mall and you'll see like Dunkin' Donuts and Domino's and McDonald's and whatever. People love going to the mall. Like, you know, there's a lot of kind of similarities. Driving is interesting. Lanes don't matter. Speed limits matter because there's speed cameras, but that's really the only way you can get pulled over driving. People are drifting. People throw it in reverse. People are just kind of like jump in front of you. I mean, it's just, it's a mad, madhouse on the road. The other thing is kind of the time of day. And now part of that is because we're coming out of Ramadan, but because during that time, you know, people don't eat from 4 a.m. until a little after 6 p.m. So because of that, people shift their schedule. And that also happens some because of the heat in the middle of the day. But with that, you know, everything is just still going like normal at three o'clock in the morning because people are sleeping until maybe, you know, 4 p.m. And then they're waking up and they're starting their day. And so um, I think that's been kind of the interesting, the cultural feel I've had is instead of it being like you wake up in the morning, you do your stuff, you go to sleep at night. It's a little more fluid than that. It's like, okay, you do stuff for a few hours, maybe you take a nap and then you get up and you keep going and everything is kind of still open and and going on no matter what time it is. Like people are, you know, four o'clock in the morning, it doesn't matter. 48 hours in, I'm sure going to have a lot more to share next week as you travel to Bahrain and explore more Saudi. So excited for you, man. I'm a, I'm a bit jealous. I definitely need to get over to that part of the world. For me, I'm also in travel mode. So we're leaving, you know, as you're listening to this, it depends what time I might be in the air. I might've already landed. We're going to be flying into Lisbon, Portugal. And we're going to be in Portugal for a couple of weeks. So next week, I'll have some Portuguese updates for you. Then we hit Southern France. Then we hit Italy at the end of our trip. So 
these next few weeks are going to be travel filled. And this just shows you the power of remote work and financial independence. And the fact that we're even doing this, Justin, is amazing. I mean, <laughs> we're multiple hours <laughs> apart, different time zones. We're both quote unquote working a bit. And that's just the magic of it. It's, it's amazing what is possible in 2022. But Justin, that's enough about us. Let's take a quick moment to tell the listeners about the awesome free spreadsheet that you're giving them. Yeah, Cody, I'm excited to make this available to all the listeners. It's the spreadsheet that I use personally from the time I started in 2015 when I had 38K to track. And now I've got this spreadsheet that shows everything I've spent all the way up to today. We're busted over that million mark. And so it's a tool that I found kind of stood the test of time. It's got all the categories in there for you. And I think it's just a really simple tool that's worked really well for me. And I hope it works well for the listeners. All right, Justin, I can't let you get away with not hyping yourself up enough because I've seen this spreadsheet and it is just all encompassing. It tracks all of your expenses. It tracks your net worth month to month. It tracks your income. It has kind of a ledger of all of your different accounts, whether that's bank accounts, 401ks, IRAs, anywhere where your money is sitting, Justin has a place for it. And so basically what Justin did was he took his spreadsheet that he uses himself. He made a template version for all of you guys to use. And he went ahead and recorded a video to show you exactly how he uses it month to month to track his net worth, income, and expenses. You can grab all of that for free at thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. That's thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. So today on The Fi Show, we have on Brennan Schlagbaum from Budget Dog, and we kind of just get to walk through his full personal finance journey from becoming a CPA straight out of college to ultimately starting his own platform, Budget Dog, where now he has hundreds of thousands of followers across all platforms. He's, I know he's big on Instagram and Twitter, and we kind of talk about the genesis of that and how he started to pivot from that full-time role to more of an entrepreneurial role and how it's been financially, how it's been emotionally, how difficult it's been, and a bunch more on that whole transition phase. Yeah, I think when you listen to this episode, one thing that's definitely going to jump out is like, this isn't someone who didn't have a career that could have made them plenty of money and they couldn't have retired that way. But this is someone who took a career that is normally a sought after one, a CPA, and decided, you know what, this is not what's given me the most joy out of life and decided to make that pivot. And that's a scary one that probably a lot of people are out there feeling if they're in a career that's comfortable and they're nervous about swapping to something else, whether it's entrepreneurship or just reinventing themselves. And so I think that's one thing that was cool about Brennan's story. So if you hear some links from the show that you want to check out or you know a friend who might be in a similar boat, you can go grab the show notes and share this episode at thefyshow.com slash budget dog. That's thefyshow.com slash budget dog. Take it away, Brennan. I feel like there really wasn't any background on like how I grew up with money at all, actually. I would say the only thing my parents really focused on were like, hey, you need to save your money. You need to put your money in a bank and also give some money away. But having this, we had the envelope system back then. So if I made like five bucks on a weekly tour, if I did my chores, of course, they would provide me with like five bucks and then say two to save, two to spend and one to church. So I was kind of spending, saving and giving. Now, as far as investing that money, not necessarily, but there was at least that like guiding principle of like, hey, your money, you're going to get a lot of money, but 100% doesn't go to spend, which most kids inherently think they do. Like, you know, I want new shoes, I want new clothes, all that stuff. So that really helped guide me and you know frame as as a kid um the background of money but other than that there was never conversations on money of like if i ever had questions like legitimate questions of like hey like college is coming up like how do i save for this there was no answers <laughs> and i love my parents death it's just they didn't come from that generation of understanding all this stuff and so i remember 16 when i first got my car there started being bills like i had to pay for my car insurance and stuff like this so i started like thinking through like, okay, I have to have X amount of dollars. And if I'm not working, well, how am I going to pay for this stuff? So that really helped 
kind of almost figured out myself. I had to do everything. When I asked those questions, I didn't get answers. It actually aggravated me to the point where it pushed me to actually find out for myself. And I think that was really part of me being a self-starter is like, hey, I didn't have the answers. And so I had to go find everything myself. And it actually benefited me in the long run as a result. So I think it's always interesting to kind of ask interest motivations, like where you thought you were going to be, maybe coming up out of high school, going towards college, because a lot of times for our guests, it's nowhere near where they are today. So like, what do you think you were going to kind of grow up to be as you're exiting high school? So my dad always thought I was going to be in the MLB. <laughs> and he always gave me that confidence. I didn't like sports to that extent. I love sports. I grew up playing baseball, basketball, and football. But like, at the end of the day, I was, you know, average athlete, let's just say that. So MLB was not in my actual dreams. I kind of quickly realized that in high school, like, hey, what am I actually going to go to college for? And I didn't really know that answer. So I started asking my family and my friends and stuff, and they didn't really know the answer either. And so I just started taking electives. And that was one of the benefits of going to the high school I went to. They had electives and like, econ and accounting and all these business classes. And I realized, you know, I was always a natural businessman or like always looking for types of deals and stuff like that. So I figured that would be a nice avenue to put myself in. Taking some of those classes for accounting and stuff gave me that confidence of like, okay, this seems like an okay route. So I went to college kind of undecided, but kind of leaning into business school realm. And I figured out accounting and finance were my thing. Now I realized quickly in the real world, accounting is not my thing at all. So I started off as a CPA at Deloitte, Deloitte Intuit. So I was there for six years. I made manager. Um, and, but I realized along that way, I loved finance. But not only did I like corporate finance, I like personal finance. And that's where Budget Dog was born. And so that's where it's transitioned me. So my background definitely helps having those finance and accounting backgrounds in classes. But I think at the end of the day, I totally transitioned into the personal finance space. And I never thought I was actually going to be here originally. So what were your thoughts going through your head as you were working at Deloitte? Because a lot of times in the fire space, we interviewed so many people kind of who are just part of this financial independence movement. A lot of the times they start entrepreneurship because they hate their job. They want to get out. They see it as a light at the end of the tunnel. Was that kind of the same thing for you? Or were you just itching that business itch that seemed like it was in the back of your mind for the entirety of your college career and moving forward? I think it was a little bit of both. (laughs) I definitely knew Deloitte was not for me long term. And I knew... Even though I was kind of on that partner track eventually, I was like, why would I want to be a partner at the firm that doesn't see their family? And that was like really deterred me from wanting to reach those levels. And so when I was manager, I was like, okay, I'm going to hit manager. I'm going to go elsewhere into another finance type of role. But along the way, I also realized like I was on fire with Budget Dog and just kind of stemmed up about two and a half years before I left. And I was at that point, I was going to leave Deloitte. I was considering doing my business full time and I've said, okay, I'm 29 years old. I'm taking that chance right here and now. And of course it comes in the month before my first was born. So she was coming. We didn't know the adjustments for having kids and stuff like that. We did pay off our house that week. So I quit my nine to five and paid off my house that week, but we also had a kid on the way. So there was going to be some adjustment period. So there was a lot of questions, but I knew along that way, I was like, you know, I don't like what I'm doing. I don't see myself in the corporate world for the next 30, 40 years. How can I get out? Well, Budget Dog kind of became the outlet. And I don't know if you could give the listeners a little bit of a look behind the curtain on financially, like how you got to that point, getting to a point to where you feel like you can step away from a normal nine to five, paying off a house, having a kid, you're 29. Like that seems like a lot to accomplish by 29. It was. That was a great question because at 23, I didn't feel like that at all. And so I like to, for anyone listening, I like to remind people like, even though you're in, let's say, a not ideal position, you can get yourself out pretty quick. So at 23, we had a lot of debt and we weren't feeling great about our situation. We had, you know, 
great paying or decent paying jobs, I guess you could say, right out of school. I was at Deloitte, she was at another company and everyone's congratulating us. But the thing is like, we didn't feel great and we had a lot of debt. So how do we get to that point to where like now, you know, like you just mentioned, paid off your house and all that stuff. Well, along the way, we got really intentional and it's basically my system in a nutshell with budget to financial freedom is like understanding all of the things with when it comes to finances, tracking your money, growing your money and protecting your money. If you can optimize those three bullet points, you're going to do really well. And so we got really serious and really intentional and all of our money, which was going to crap at the time, started going to our debt, started going to our investments. And we were able to piece this together. It took six years or five years or whatever in totality. It's to date, it's almost seven. So it takes a long time and you can't, you're not always going to have that motivation feeling like you're never always going to wake up and feel motivated. If you do, let me know your secret. But most people don't feel like that. They're tired. They wake up, went to bed too late. They don't feel like waking up. That's the reality of it. But to be able to wake yourself up and go through the motions of what you, the habits, the good habits that you've set really take you from like step one to like step 10 really fast. And it compounds with time, which is an amazing part of it is everything success compounds tremendously. And that's really what happened with us. It was all of a sudden, like, I remember specifically when we paid off our house, you know, quit my nine to five, started my business, all this stuff, it happened in the same week. And so like for five years, we were grinding so, so hard. And all of a sudden, this came to like this screeching halt of just like, greatness, like together. And it was like amazing to witness it actually come to fruition after all this five, five to six years of hard work. But it does do that. And, and if you have the confidence that you can do this over the long term, you will do it. So in your own words, before you kind of started this whole journey, you were buying crap or just throwing your money at crap rather than paying down your debts, investing all the quote unquote right things to do with your money. What was the light bulb moment? Like what sparked that motivation for you to start budgeting, start tracking, start putting your money toward things that are going to increase in value and increase your net worth over time? Because I worked in corporate America for a short stint and, you know, similar to you, you were at Deloitte, I was at a commercial real estate lending, but a lot of people are making a ton of money in those roles and they're also spending a ton of money. I had a coworker spending like 4,800 a month on rent. So <laughs> I'm wondering if it was like you read a book and you had a light bulb moment and you're like, Brennan, I need to just get my financial situation under control. I'm just going buck wild right now. What was that light bulb moment for you? I remember specifically, it was, it was actually a specific moment in my living room. So my wife was sitting on the couch. I don't know what she was exactly doing. And I was just in my zone walking and pacing throughout the house speaking gibberish to my wife. And my wife was like, what are you saying? And I was already in the spreadsheet so deep. And I was like, kind of like echoing what, what I saw in the spreadsheets in a semi-cohesive manner. But like, it was a total disaster. And so what, what I really did before that weird moment with my wife, I put together a balance sheet and a budget and amortization schedules. And I saw our entire picture from start to finish. And I was like, wow, we are not in the position I thought we were. And when we actually put it on paper and like noticed that like snapshot of where we were, it got me in like this, like, I need to fix this right away. And I understand it was $304,000 of debt. And there was a lot of different things going all over the place and student loans, everything you could think of. But I did realize like, if we have a plan, we piece it together step by step, we can take one bite at a time and we can knock this out with time. And that's really where it started. Now, when we first started, my wife still wasn't really truly on board. She was supportive, but she wasn't like in the mentality I was. So what I did was actually play podcasts relating to finances and maximizing your money. And when she heard it coming from someone else's mouth, she started listening. And that moment, along with the podcast with over in the next couple months, really helped get her on board. Once she got on board, 
it was game on. Like it, we were doing things so much faster because she was thinking actively, how can we save money? How can we invest more money? And when that comes together with two people, you become extremely powerful. So I think this could be good if possible to go through some of the actual like detailed numbers to understand. It sounds like you maybe saved up hundreds of thousands of dollars between in the last, in those five or six years. What were those savings rate looking like? What was the financial milestone that you hit? This is okay. I'm comfortable enough walking away at 29 with a newborn. There's a lot to unpack here. So I think first things first is we were $304,000 of debt in totality, 76,000 non-mortgage debt, which was the big hurdle in the beginning that really put me over the edge. The mortgage was a whole different story, but the non-mortgage debt, when we were first paying that off, we paid that off in a year and we were saving, I wouldn't want to say about 60 to 70% of our income, which was a lot. It was pretty much most of our income after taxes. We did not go on any vacations that year. We did not do anything crazy or extra that was going to take away from that because we were so focused on just getting that gone. So at 23 years old, we were like, hey, we can knock this debt out, never think about it again. And if we do this aggressively, and so we did, we uh, sacrificed some things. And when we paid that off, it was an amazing feeling. So as we got further down the line, we ended up paying off our house for different reasons. We started thinking as to like, hey, what is that number that I can actually walk away from my job? And so that was a big reason I did pay off my house early. We had a small opportunity window of three salaries, essentially, with my budget dog as well as hers. And so we were like, hey, this is a really good opportunity before a kid comes to get this gone and give us more confidence to take that leap of faith. So partly it was low expenses that gave me the confidence. The other part of it was I actually almost 3 x my income from Deloitte with budget dogs. So I was looking at it as like, okay, if I can do this for 12 months straight of beating my nine to five at Deloitte, why not take that chance? I have a once in a lifetime opportunity. If it fails, it fails. And I go back to the nine to five, which I've always known. So I looked at it as, hey, if I can do this for 12 months, why can't I do it without Deloitte in my picture with more time to my name, minus a newborn, of course, and really maximize the business in totality. It was an online social media account and it's transitioned to a business, which is a whole different concept. So there was never like that specific number, but there was like the confidence I was making more money than my nine to five consistently, as well as at a very, very low expense. Well, I love what you just said there, because I think this is a common misconception when people are thinking about retiring early and the fire movement and all these types of things is that you can always go back to work. Like you are a CPA, you had all of this credibility, you had all this job history with Deloitte. You could probably, you know, take a year or two or three off and then go get another CPA role somewhere else if Budget Dog were to fail, where obviously it hasn't, it's been wildly successful. But I think a lot of people just discount that fact that if you're young, if you're able-bodied, if you're still kind of sharp in whatever profession you might've left, you can always go back. Well, that's important. And I think that if somebody is an, let's say there's somebody that's an employer out there looking for me, let's say it fails two years from now and somebody's looking for a job applicant, who are they going to go for? Are they going to go for that person that did work at Deloitte and actually tried to build an actual business or are they going to go to the next applicant in line? That's just the next person. It's very telling of somebody that actually takes that leap of faith. I think there's more to it of that type of person that you're hiring. And I think it's very powerful for an employer even. So I want to pull a quote from a very recent tweet, and I thought this would be fitting because it's probably fresh in your mind. I don't know if you schedule tweets out in advance, but nevertheless, it's probably recent at best. It says, I think most people are broke because they are simply chasing the wrong things. I think it's value-based. I think it's much more than just a lack of financial literacy. And given what we were just talking about, I'd love if you could just talk to this quote and what you mean by it. 
Yeah, I tweeted that today and it was not planned. So I <laughs> do remember it specifically. Like I'm at the gym, I'm thinking, I'm walking, and I just, boom, something pops in my mind. And so this specifically today was regarding basically the wrong stuff, right? I think a lot of people in America, we all make, let's say an average income, I think is 76,000 approximately for household. That's enough to build wealth. I don't care what anyone says, that's enough. Now, can the $76,000 household compete from a spending perspective the 150,000? Absolutely not, obviously, it's half the total income. But I think a lot of times is, let's just say one of those households are gonna be buying the wrong things whether it be cars, whether it be houses, because it's a value-based thing. Let's say they are competing with their neighbors for different reasons, like a house or whatever. They want to get the next biggest house. That's never appealed to me. And I think that's been a big reason I've been able to build wealth is because our incomes have substantially increased since 23 years old, like four or five X of what we were at. We have not changed our living at all. If anything, we've gotten cheaper because we've had less expenses come through the door. So like that gap has widened, but we've stayed the same. And it's because we're not chasing like our neighbors, like status or like my friends or people we know, like to keep up with them. Like it just doesn't matter. Like if they want to buy something, that's fine. But a lot of people are buying it for the wrong reasons. Another thing is when you look at your budget and you see the line and you actually actually look through your old bank statements. And sometimes this comes to top of mind when somebody's first looking at their bank statements, they've never budgeted in their life. And they see all these things they've spent money on and they kind of feel like, guilt or shame, like maybe you're spending a lot of money on alcohol, or maybe you're spending a lot of money on gambling, sports gambling. And it kind of brings out those values in somebody like where you spend your money is what you value. And some people feel uncomfortable with that. And I think that's why a lot of people don't budget because they're able to go to target 25 times a week or go out to eat 25 times a week. And like, they can kind of justify it and put it to the side and forget it. But when they see it on a bank statement, it brings those values to, to the surface and it makes people feel uncomfortable. And that's exactly what that tweet was after. Let's talk a little bit about budgeting. I mean, I'm a huge fan of budgeting. I'm a, more of a fan of using like a spreadsheet versus a an, an online tool just because of what you said. Like you get in there, you see exactly what it is that you're spending money on. And it just, I feel like it's more impactful. Like you really feel it. What's kind of your views on people budgeting, maybe some ways they can easily get started, the methods you prefer, that sort of thing? So I actually came out with my budget financial freedom course specifically for budgeting. So I think the biggest thing is like once you do that manual aspect of it, I think it's a game changer. I think there's a little bit of automation you can put in place to make it easier. Like you don't want to just like live in the 1990s or whatever. There's some newer ways to budget, but I do think adding some automation with some manual is the perfect blend because like you were saying, Justin, like when you are looking at your budget, that manual aspect of it is like really critical. It's like cash versus card debate. Like you feel it differently when you're giving someone cash. Same thing with budgeting. So what we do in Budget Financial Freedom is I do link them to like a mint or you need a budget or personal finance or personal capital, personal capital. <laughs> there, there you go. Personal capital. And that will sum up your total transactions, maybe by categories that you already have written in your budget in an Excel based for template and then you can input that in there and so i think the analysis of that you're like okay i went over in food or whatever and you can kind of break that down a little more instead of entering each individual transaction it's just easier to take those automated systems and then import it in there and i think if you're spending a lot of money you want to and you keep going over budget i think at some point you're gonna have to come to realization like hey i need to get a little more in the details because i think a lot of people track what they've spent after they've done it, but they don't budget and prepare before they've spent it. This might seem like a somewhat unrelated question, but why budget dog? Where did the dog come from? <laughs> <laughs> I get that question on almost every podcast I'm on now. So 
way back in 2019 when I started my account, my wife and I were thinking about a name for Instagram. I was not a social media guy, so I was just like, I don't know, like what makes sense? And we started thinking of like financial names. And then we also, we have dogs, literally two dogs. And we were like, what if we marry the two together and just say like budget? And we were trying to think of the other side, budget dog. And it was like, it was kind of that click moment, but it was actually my logo was a picture of my dog. So I was speaking from a dog's perspective when I first started. <laughs> That's the reality of budget dog. And I've rebranded since, so my face is on it more. But I kept the name intentionally because people liked it. It was catchy and stuff like that. But a lot of people think like I'm calling myself the budget dog. It was actually Nico, my <laughs> my shepherd mix. <laughs> that was the face of budget dog originally. <laughs> and what was the building of budget dog like? You know, when you're first getting started, kind of what you thought you were going to do and when it started turning into an actual business. Yeah. So I remember specifically it was about 16 months in. I was kind of posting consistently on Instagram only. And I eventually kind of migrated to Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, all these different other social platforms. And I started picking up traction of like followers and stuff like that. But it was 16 months in, I didn't make hardly any money at all. And I was like, you know, this is fun. This is my hobby. This is what I like to do. And then at that 16 month point, all of a sudden, I think I had my first like $5,000 a month, which was really good from zero to 5,000 on a side hustle from at the time was like, wow, this is incredible. And so I was like, okay, I got something here, but what is it? So I realized what I did was I started growing my following and I started focusing on the growth of my following because the more people that see my stuff, the more people that will buy my products and services essentially with time. And so I was like, I need to get eyeballs. Like that's what I need. And so at that point, when I realized that after that 16 month mark, I hit that $5,000 first month, I was like, boom, I've got something. Let's study what just happened. And I basically amplified what just happened in that month over the next two years or whatever. And that's the moment I was like, okay, I, I've got a business more than a social media account. How have you maintained such consistency? I feel like you're one of the most consistent posters on both Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, TikTok. Like, do you have a schedule? Do you do it all in one day or what works for you? I have almost gray hair. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But like, I have always been a very consistent, like regimented person. Just that's my personality. But I do what I try to do is put systems in place to allow me to be consistent. Because like, I know, if I'm thinking like, hey, I need to post today and here and here and here, I'm not going to have the content ready. So one thing I do is like on my calendar, I'll say like on my content calendar, I'll say, okay, Monday, maybe three TikTok videos I have to create Tuesday, a YouTube video. But I know I've scheduled this stuff out in advance to where like, okay, I'm, let's say two months in advance of content. So if I skip that week or like I'm on vacation, I have some buffer as well. But a lot of systems in place and automation in my content calendar to remind me that, hey, I need to do this and build this content so I have enough going forward. And then when I'm out and about, I can just hit post. Mm. And I feel like sometimes personal finance content can be a little tricky as far as like figuring out what it is that resonates with people. I'm wondering like when you got started, if there's things that you thought, man, this is going to be like, everyone's going to love this and it just flopped or vice versa things. You're like, I don't know, I'll just throw it out here and people loved it. You have to study the game. Like you really do. And it's kind of crappy at times because social media's different platforms will push, let's just say clickbaity things. It's a hard balance when you're like trying to balance between like, okay, what's like quality information and what's going to actually get views on my stuff. And so I kind of do a mix of both. Like I love to create threads, but a lot of times Twitter doesn't promote threads. So it's like, what's that quick bullet point tweet that you can say that's actually going to get a lot of likes and retweets and stuff like that. So that's the biggest thing. But I do think from the from the person, like individuals, person or like what the everyday person's thinking about, what's going to actually impact them directly. 
And so a lot of my content's based on stuff that I've actually done personally that's helped me, or I talk to people, my clients and stuff and other people I just come in contact with and say, what's your like biggest issue? How do I solve that problem? And then I create content around that problem. So speaking of threads and, you know, we've obviously established you as a budget pro and you have budget dog, the brand, but you also talk a lot about building wealth and investing and putting your money to work. In a recent thread, you talked about how you were adjusting your portfolio because right now we're recording this in April 2022, record inflation, interest rates are rising everywhere. There's a war going on. How are you kind of just thinking about the global economy and like hedging your bets when it comes to the investing side of things? Yeah. So on that thread specifically, it was kind of like a joke thread. It was uh, definitely to get people's attention, but like that right below it, I said, I'm not changing anything. And so I think that's uh, speaks to what kind of investor I am. It's like a long-term dollar cost average index fund investor that doesn't care about what's going on in the, you know, I'm paying attention, but like, I don't necessarily care the, who the president is, what latest tax laws. I realize over the long term, like things are going to be all right. And I'm going to build wealth that way. So for me, I was looking at, I always looked at it as like, hey, if I consistently do this for a long period of time, I'm going to guarantee a win. And I don't have to spend much time doing so because it's all automated. So that's really what I do. I do like a global perspective at the same time. So I do have international holdings. And I think that's really important for a well-diversified portfolio. So that's kind of what I, I my outlook is, is like, hey, let's just own the whole world and put on autopilot and let's focus on my contribution. Obviously, me and Cody are huge fans of that, kind of like those total stock market indexes and index funds of different sorts. But do you have like a, a guilty pleasure in the investing world? Do you have a little something you like to throw two, 3% at that's just a little fun? So I do have crypto, I guess you could say. Um, but I do, I include that as part of my like well-balanced portfolio. So I don't think it's like crazy, but I have Facebook stock as well. I love Facebook. A lot of people hate it, but I love it. I'm very bullish on it long-term for various reasons. But like, I think crypto is an interesting component to my portfolio. I wasn't the person to think that like I would get into crypto two, three years ago. I remember in 2015, my friend said he had Bitcoin. I was like, that's a scam, like no doubt. (laughs) And as I've educated myself, like I've added it to my portfolio and I I think uh, very highly of it and stuff like that. So that would be my guilty pleasure per se, where I'm like, okay, I've gotten my allocation to Bitcoin and, and Ethereum and stuff. I feel confident in that. If it does go crazy, you know, that crazy person, that 18 year old that puts their money in Shiba Inu, like I get a piece of that in a sense. Not that I do Shiba Inu, but you get my point. Like a little bit of crypto is probably my guilty pleasure. And you actually talk quite a bit about Web3 and just the metaverse and kind of how the economy in the world is changing. So, I mean, you can take this in any direction you want, but generally, what are your kind of your thoughts over the next couple of years? Like, I know you're bullish on Web3, so I'll at least lead with that. But like, and you're obviously investing in crypto and Justin and I also have our own crypto holdings. But yeah, what's just your general outlook on what the state of the Internet in the world is going to be like with Web3 in a couple of years? Yeah, I'm very bullish on Web3. And I think that this is the reason I think a lot of people see Web3 as some like crazy sci-fi like in this like just craziness but i always like to say like i think it's an extension of what we currently do so i think us on this podcast looking at each other right now through a screen i think it would be a lot cooler if we were able to be in the same room together maybe in hologram form but actually be able to see each other feel each other's movements you get a better reading on people right if you're in the actual room so i think web3 really provides that i think it gets you to that extension of zooms that we know or those like video calls that we were just like, all right, do we really have another video call? Like, can I just turn my screen off? Like, there's that personal touch I think Web3 is actually going to provide. And I think it brings us closer, whereas a lot of people think it brings us further. I don't think like in-person meetings are going to end or like people aren't going to travel or go out in public anymore. I don't think that. So I think it's going to be a healthy balance for a society instead of being like 
on a phone call with no face and just a, a voice, like we can actually be together and talk together. And so as long as you put the proper limits in place and things like that, I think there's a lot of positivity that's going to come out of it. Those are definitely some interesting kind of like forward looking investment type, you know, thoughts and observations. I'm curious when you're working with other clients, like, you know, you're just working with people who are trying to get their life together. Do you ever come across like a common theme of things that people are investing in that make you really nervous? Like maybe like a word of caution you would love to give the listeners. Uh, whole life insurance. <laughs> this is a very, very deep conversation. But let's just say if I see that you have whole life insurance and not a lot of net worth built up or lower income, that gives me like really big red flags. And almost every time I talk to somebody in that situation, they've been sold from one of their friends from college or high school or something like that. Like, hey, this whole life insurance policy is great. I'm like, do you have dependents? And they're like, no, but I can pull it out tax free in the future. It's like, it's a very loaded answer. But the whole life insurance really worries me because it's meant for a very small population. Yeah, definitely can echo that. There's always use cases for every product out there. But yeah, 99.9% of people don't need whole life unless you want to get really fancy with it. Yes. So another kind of contrarian opinion I saw that I wrote down here, and you know, this could start a fire on Twitter, Instagram, you name it, (laughs) is that you invest your emergency fund, even though you advise that most people don't do the same. Could you explain that? And why is it advantageous for, again, some people, maybe not everyone, but some people, it could be an advantageous thing to do. Yeah. So I think the investment of the emergency fund is a fairly recent one. It's something I would typically not recommend. It's something we didn't do during our entire process of paying off the house and all that stuff. Once we got to this point, like, I don't know exact, our savings rate is going to change from month to month, but I would say in general, it would definitely, it's always over 50% like guaranteed, but it's been up as high as 86%. And so what that really means is a lot of cash flow is coming through the door. So like if there is cash flow, and I talk about liquidity versus cash, I think the whole point of an emergency fund is to have liquidity in case something happens, right? And so I still serve that purpose with what I'm doing. And so I think there's a few things in place of liquidity for our particular situation is like number one, higher monthly cash flow, low expenses. So like if my job were to go away, her job were to go away entirely, we would be able to cover our expenses fairly easily, plus some. And we built our life like that intentionally. So we have a lot of flexibility. And number two, we have an HSA that we've actually spent out of pocket for, for medical expenses, not to get into too much detail about the HSA, but we have money that we basically can pull that from that tax-free for anything at any point in time. So like we have technically an emergency fund, a pseudo emergency fund through that Third, we have business tax reserves. So as an S-Corp, I have to pay quarterly taxes. And so we build up a significant chunk of cash throughout the quarters to pay obviously our taxes. So that's always there to cut somewhat of like a floating fund. And then fourth is we actually have a brokerage. And as we built that up, I felt comfortable to a certain number taking our emergency fund and fully investing that. So basically, if let's just say that brokerage, if the market turned in two or lost 80% even, would that brokerage have enough money to cover the emergency fund? And if the answer is yes, I feel very confident doing so with all those other lines of defense in place. Now, if one of those facts I just laid out change, I might change my outlook on how much we invest. And if we have more cash on hand, there's always nuanced things that are going to happen. Yeah, I think that, that like a line of defense mentality is a great way of looking at it. Like you've got these different things. You're not just tied to one avenue. If like one thing fails, then you're screwed. You've, you've got different you know, you said lines of defense. And if you're talking to somebody who's maybe actually getting ready to pull the trigger and quit themselves, but maybe they don't have like a a fallback thing, like they're just actually going to fully retire, they've saved up their nest egg. What are maybe some of those lines of defense that you recommend people try to set up in case the next 
bear market comes along is really aggressive or something happens in life. For somebody that's like 60 plus with retirement? No, maybe somebody who's like in their 30s, early 40s, who's doing the early retirement. Gotcha. So I think I think to the younger generation, term life insurance is really important. Just so if your family is, if you were to go, your family's protected with basically a replacement of your income. So I think life insurance is a big thing. I talk about a lot of different types of insurances. I think it's more protection and preservation at that point in time. Like, hey, can I like preserve my wealth? And as you get older, maybe closer to 60 years old, start looking at like long-term care options because that stuff adds up very, very fast. But I think putting your money into multiple different buckets that can kind of surround yourself. Think of it like as a moat, essentially, where if somebody comes in a tax, like, okay, maybe the HSA funds went out the door. Maybe the business quarterly tax reserves went out the door. Maybe you have to pull back on your brokerage. Maybe your cash flow is impacted. But like, it's hard to penetrate the castle if you have all these different things in line. And I think things I mentioned there are very important. So actually, since we have you as a CPA here, and I don't think we've really talked about like company structure. I know you just mentioned you're an S corp. I'm going through this whole like tax restructuring thing with my other business, Gold City Ventures. Could you just talk quickly about like, I guess we can start with S corps, but just like business structures for solopreneurs, people who are starting businesses, some advantages and disadvantages. Obviously, this could be a whole podcast in and of itself, but maybe just the high level overview. Yeah, I'll give you guys a high level of what I did personally. So technically, everyone thinks that you need an LLC. You do not need an LLC. You are by default a sole proprietor if you start a business and you generate income. And so that's reported on your Schedule C attached to your 1040 tax return. So by default, you are that. Now, would I put an LLC around a business? Likely, yes. But what's the structure? It's not the LLC. You're actually a sole proprietor, maybe a single member LLC. Then the next step for a lot of solopreneurs would be the S Corp. And that's what I do as well. So if you make the rule of thumb typically is like $50,000 net income. You should probably consider jumping from the sole proprietor to the S-Corp because of the way you are paid. So when you pay yourself with a sole proprietor, you are 100% salary. When you are an S-Corp, you pay yourself the same dollar amount, but a portion of that, let's say 40% goes to salary. The other 60% goes to distribution. That distribution is not subject to self-employment tax, which is like 15.3% and 92.35% of net income, not to get too technical. And that is really detrimental to 60%. I mean, that's a lot of money when you're talking, let's say $100,000 or whatever. And so that's why I switched to the S-Corp. I saved five figures in taxes by making that simple election, filing form 2253 to make that official. And so highly recommend that for anybody out there, solopreneurs looking into that direction. And with, I mean, obviously tax season is kind of either, you know, closing up or just behind us, but are there things that maybe for the next year as we go into another, as we go into the next year, like people could look out for, for next tax season that in their ordinary, in their everyday ordinary lives that they could kind of, maybe they're missing the boat on, like maybe there's like some simple things that they're just kind of missing out on that would be great tax advantages. Yeah. So as few as advantages, I think the biggest thing is tax planning with a professional. If you can plan out and adjust your withholdings maybe because I hear a lot of people like, hey, I get this 5000 One of my buddies got an $11,000 tax return. And I'm like, that's not how it should work. <laughs> like That's your money going back to you and you're giving the government free money. So I think the biggest thing is tax planning, effectively doing it before the month or before the year ends so that you can adjust maybe withholdings because a lot of times, even if you file, let's say on a W-4, like a zero, you still might need to adjust your withholdings outside of that W-4 to really get it right. And that was something my wife and I struggled with as W-2 employees, you know, a couple of years back is like getting that perfect balance throughout the year. So we don't get a bunch of money back or we don't owe a bunch of money. 
we kind of break even or you know plus or minus. So I think that's the biggest thing is tax planning with a professional. I always think you should work with a CPA at least one year in the beginning. Now, if you have a basic 1040, there's not much to it. You probably can replicate that tax return the following year. But if you have nuanced stuff or things have changed, always work with a professional because they're going to find you things that are going to save you money no matter how much you pay them. But then if you have a basic return, just do your due diligence. Make sure there is nothing that's actually changed and have maybe a, a checklist. I think a checklist is always good to know what you have to get each and every year, maybe with some links or something like that. That you're like, okay, instead of like thinking through this, I know Vanguard has my you know 1099s. I can say Vanguard link and it would take me to the tax center. Organization tips like that always help. Yeah, I think that's fantastic advice. And I was so reluctant to work with professionals early on, especially when I was younger, because I was just so damn frugal. But now I've kind of learned like these people can actually save me money by them, by me paying them some money. Like sometimes they can save me thousands of some trick I didn't know or something that I was filing incorrectly or something that wasn't on my checklist. So echo that sentiment, Brendan. We haven't talked about something that's really exciting, a new development in your life. And this is a TV show. How did that happen? Like, can you just tell us about the genesis of that? And like, where did that come from? Yeah. So ROI TV reached out to me and they wanted me to be the featured CPA on the show. So Obviously, I was blown away by that. I was honored and stuff. And it was a really cool opportunity. And they said, hey, we want to fly you up to New York City and film the show. So my last show was last Saturday, two Saturdays ago. And it just aired like last Friday. So super cool, awesome experience, awesome team. I'm going to be the first Thursday of each month on this show. And then in a couple of months, I might be the host as well, filling in for somebody on maternity leave. So there's a lot to come with that. But I'm really excited just to have this opportunity to get my message out a little more. And for folks who just heard that, how do they go watch it? So it's on Apple TV, Roku TV. You can just go to YouTube and watch some episodes. The YouTube channel is obviously smaller, but mostly just if you download ROI TV on your phone, like it's an app, you can just log in and watch all the episodes. They have tons of different podcasts and shows on there. Mine's Coffee with Kevin Hills and The Wind Down. Awesome, man. Well, that's exciting stuff. And hopefully people go check that out. What else is kind of new in Budget Dog World? What other things are you working on, developing? Is it just keeping content fresh and continuing to grow the audience, grow the following and serve them as best you can? Or are there some secret projects that maybe you can Oh, there, There's a lot coming. <laughs> um, so I, I think I went crazy. I think it was last week and you might've seen my tweets. I was like, I bursted into my house and my wife was saying what I was talking about with like paying off the debt, like that moment when I was like going crazy and my wife I was speaking gibberish. That was like the second time I've done that. And this was the third time. <laughs> and so the third time she was like, what's going on? And I was like, I have like my entire business plan mapped out for the next 40 years, like in my head. And I was like thinking of like this framework, this ex- like awesome framework to apply to budget dog to kind of put it into perspective and make it easier for people to follow. And like, it just dawned on me right then and there. And I like have this entire 40 year business plan in a sense, it's all on whiteboard right now form, but I'm trying to drip it out in content and make it different, you know, different types of things. But in a sense, let's just say high level. I talk about tracking your money, protecting your money and growing your money. And a lot's going to come from all of those different angles. My next project per se is obviously keep my content fresh, but also an investing course. I have my budget to financial freedom course for tracking your money, but for growing your money, I only have a book investing one-on-one at this point. I'm going to take that into a course as well, but then there's going to be a third piece of this as well, protecting your money with a insurance and financial product course, which I don't think is out there to be honest. Like I don't think a lot of influencers are talking about that angle of personal finance of like, how do you actually preserve your wealth and protect yourself if somebody comes after you? So I have a lot of things in the works. I would say those are my next two projects. 
Awesome. Yeah, I think the, the, the protecting one definitely does sound interesting. We've had a few guests who kind of make mentions that even things like post-life, like your trust in estates. And I just yep. think that part of the information is just so like underserved because everybody's obviously charging forward hard to try to reach these goals. But then when you get there, like kind of look around, what do I do next? Yeah, I think it speaks to our age group too. Our demographic's young. Most people aren't dealing with this, but I do think regardless if it's a hit on social media or not, I'm putting this in my framework and I'm providing this opportunity for people to understand this piece. It's going to definitely impact a lot of people young. And if you prepare in the correct way and you learn this stuff, I think it's going to be exponential for you long-term. Absolutely. For our audience members who want to reach out, I know you're, again, active on a million different platforms. Where do you want to direct people? Where do you want people to get in touch, see what you got going on? Yeah, you can go to Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube, and it's just Budget Dog, Twitter, TikTok, and I think that's all at Budget Dog underscore. I have one account on all platforms, FYI, so I, I know I have a lot of fake accounts out there, so I have one account. Those are the ads. You can always DM me, and I will never directly DM you asking you for your how your trades are going. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Yeah, too many of those people nowadays copying accounts. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely it happens ridiculous. all the time. <laughs> Well, thank you, Brendan, for coming on the show. It was uh, awesome to kind of get to hear your background, get to hear your philosophies and get to hear kind of some of the stuff that you're putting out there to help the community. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening.